0: Don't underestimate the power of something as simple as getting people together. I know that sounds very sort of flowery and a very, you know, non-specific, non-tangible, non-evidence-based recommendation, but it is true. You know, there's so many moments where when you get together with people, people do better.
1: That was Nick Nguyen, our guest this week. Dr. Nguyen is a practicing family physician and the director of physician experience and provider development at Beth Israel Deaconess Healthcare. He has created a model for clinician community building, which was highlighted and published in New England Journal Catalyst, and he joins us today to talk about that initiative. I'm Audrey Provenzano, and this is Review of Systems from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcast along the top to subscribe or find more information about our show. You can find a bio of our guest, Dr. Nguyen, and a link to his New England Journal Catalyst there as well. Thanks for listening. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: You know, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited.
1: So we're going to talk a little bit about some programming that you developed with some colleagues to help combat burnout and isolation in your workplace at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. Burnout is a really loaded and I think sometimes imprecise term. So why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what you mean by burnout. How did you define it?
0: burnout has been a term that has been used quite broadly throughout you know all industries but especially healthcare over the last few years where it's uh, gotten a lot of attention about what it means what the effects are on both our um, uh, care team members our workforce our physicians and also indirectly to our patients and their families Um, so there's multiple ways to think about burnout but the first thing to say about is that it probably means something different to many people many doctors and many health organizations so my definition of burnout by no means is a global definition it's more of what applied to our organization so at the very practical and tangible level what we were trying to find out in terms of burnout what it meant was related to a question that really used that term for clinicians and used the term burnout and asked those clinicians at the end of the day i feel burnt out Um, And However, they wanted to interpret that was uh, really up to them. Um, The term burnout for us really relates to many other concepts such as satisfaction and a ability to carry on with the work that you are doing with those two concepts in mind of satisfaction and experience. Um, you know, burnout doesn't necessarily relate to fatigue, although it can. It doesn't necessarily relate to being in a bad in a bad mood or in a bad place emotionally, although it can. So for us, you know, the practical term of it was really based on that question. So at the end of the workday, I feel burnt out. And on a more um, on a more institutional organizational level, I think that we relate the term of burnout to. Um, suboptimal experience and suboptimal satisfaction.
1: Hmm. Another goal of the programming that you developed was to reduce workplace loneliness among physicians and other providers. And, you know, as you said, there's been this kind of burgeoning literature over the last couple of years and attention paid to burnout in the workplace. But there hasn't been a lot about loneliness, but I, I think it's a really important factor. And it's it's kind of strange. It's a strange thing because, you know, I frequently feel lonely at work, but I'm surrounded by people all the time and really wonderful people. You know, my my colleagues are are fantastic. I really enjoy working with them, but sometimes I feel all alone and bearing this responsibility for my panel of patients. It's, you know, impossible to keep track of the minutiae tracking thyroid nodules and lung nodules and pap smears. And then, you know, the day-to-day difficulties in managing chronic disease, plus all the paperwork, you know and i think of all of that mostly as technical work it's not what helps me feel connected to my patients and my colleagues or what you know motivates me to come to work every day what motivates me to come to work every day is you know having that relationship with my patients and enjoying seeing them in the clinic or having a good conversation with them on the phone so
0: yeah you're you're exactly right on that point you know i think that the anecdote you just spoke of in terms of tracking thyroid and lung nodules and colonoscopies and pap smears and all these different competing demands it often drives us to work in silos so you may be surrounded by you know multiple physicians your medical assistant your nurse your front desk team your manager you know all these different entities including patients and families but at the end of the day because the nature of the work is so demanding and pulls you in so many different directions it tends to be quite isolating and like i said really drive us to work in silos Hmm. And so, you know, the the idea of of addressing loneliness really came out of our concept and your very pointed question of what does burnout mean to us? And more importantly, what can we do about it, right? So there's so much literature about burnout being out there, um, but there's little literature about what we can do about it in terms of some real action items. And so one of the action items we looked at was, well, you know, isolation, working in silos, feeling lonely, that seems to relate to the experience and the satisfaction of being a healthcare worker. Can we address this issue of loneliness or isolation and see if it has some effect on burnout and the experience and satisfaction that are related to it? Mm-hmm. Um, and as we you know, seen and as you've lived and, and you know, the, the anecdote that you just told um, is that it's really easy in healthcare to drive ourselves into isolation just out of um, the nature of the work itself. So how do we pull ourselves out of that intentionally and build a community, cohesion, connection, However you want to call it, to really rediscover that connection with, you know, your colleagues that re-energizes you to do the work that we that you know set out to do when you first started, um, to reduce that loneliness, to reduce that isolation, and therefore affect the, the burnout.
1: Hmm. When you undertook this work, you started with a survey of providers in your organization. So what did you ask and, and what did you find out?
0: Yeah so you know the project that we did which is you know what we wrote about in the article was really based out of a group of family medicine physicians you know there were 40 family physicians in our organization but they were really spread out geographically so so talk about already a setup for being isolated they're not even in the same geographic place right and then beyond that even in the places where there were groups of two three four or five family physicians even they had some sense of isolation and loneliness and so the questions that we asked them in the survey were questions relating to burnout, like that's the first question I talked about. At the end of the day, uh, I feel burnt out, You know, agree or disagree. And that's really based on a Press Ganey question, uh, a benchmark Press question on burnout. Um, And then we peppered the survey with other questions relating to community and collegiality. So we asked, do you feel like there is a strong sense of community for family medicine physicians here at BAdHC? Do you feel like you're connected to your colleagues and have some sense of collegiality? So we're really driving at, yes, assessing burnout, but also assessing if they felt there was a sense of community and collegiality. And finally, in the survey, we also asked um, in a sort of indirect way, you know, what their intention was in terms of the future, their future career. We posed to them a statement um, that went something like this, which is, I intend to be a physician at the IDHC for the next five years. Hmm. And at the beginning of the survey, I believe only about 20% or 22% of the physicians surveyed could answer that in an affirmative way that said, I agree. would say, I agree, I will be a physician here at BIDHC for the next five years, which Mm. is ominous when you think about, uh, you know, what that looks like as a trajectory. Now, there are many, many indirect factors to that, and certainly we did not want our survey to, you know, sort of point to certain data, which is something that happens quite often when you're doing experiential data, right? Um, However, it's something that we want to see if there's a potential, not necessarily correlation, but an association between attrition. Burnout and isolation, or lack of community.
1: Mm. I wanted to add, there was um, this kind of mind-boggling figure that you guys cited in your article describing this work. If, in fact, there was that much turnover in an organization, it would cost about 2.6 million dollars to replace those providers. So, uh,
0: and that's a conservative, actually, estimate. To be honest, yeah, um, it's usually going to be more than that. You know, when you think about um, when primary care or family physicians leave an organization we have to factor in the cost of turnover of, bringing, of losing a physician, bringing on a new physician, uh, you know, and all the indirect and direct costs that are associated with that. And that's not even talking about the ripples and repercussions to the families, the patients that are losing their continuity of care, the disruption to the care team, the extra stress that's um, sort of posed onto the remaining care team members that stay at the site or practice where they were at. So. You know, uh, I think that, um, you know, this was something very, very, I would say poignant to us, you know, and and something that uh, was worth investing time, effort, energy, and also dollars to, uh, just to make sure that we were able to avoid those those direct and indirect costs and consequences of physician attrition.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a few minutes and articulate something that I think probably many listeners are rolling their eyes and thinking, just that (laughs) these interventions meant to combat burnout can be frustrating in a way, because while it's clear that this program is well thought out, the real problem is that primary care is that it's currently structured as just not a sustainable job. I think for many, planning to leave in the next five years is a perfectly rational response (laughs) to being in a job that is just not doable. You know, we have all this evidence from Chris Sinsky and other investigators that, For every hour we spend with patients, we have two hours of desk work. A lot of that is onerous, and we've talked about before, really doesn't require clinical judgment and does not build relationships with patients. It's just technical kind of mind-numbing work. And until that dynamic changes, until payment changes so that productivity requirements are not so high, or until primary care is given significantly more support through, you know, ACO-type structures or more administrative support, these, kinds of programs will just be little nibbles around the edges and aren't going to address the underlying problem.
0: Yeah, you know, you're actually not playing devil's advocate at all because you and I are exactly on the same page. I completely agree 100%. You know, I was uh, uh, speaking on a panel in Aspen and the same question was asked of me and they said, you know, this is all well and good. Um, it's very positive. It's, it's effective in some, some manner. Um, And it seems like the right thing to do. However, do you feel like it's actually getting to the core of the problem? And I said, absolutely not. And I said um, to that person who asked the question in the audience, you know, the only solution is to re-engineer the way that primary care actually is set or is engineered, right? You're absolutely right. You know, the, the core of the problem is really all the administrative burden, the way that reimbursement and payment uh, has to be reformed and rethought and and revalued and and uh, currently is being devalued in many ways. The field has to itself be perceived in a different light. Has to be represented in a better way, in a more significant, important way, uh, to really address all of the things that do actually burn us out, which is you know the administrative burden, the EHRs, the competing demands, all the different things. So yes. This is somewhat of a peripheral nibble and, and, and until we, we fix the, the, the source of the problem, which is you know, the system itself, until we re-engineer primary care and the way that it fits into you know, healthcare in general, we are still going to run into this issue. Even if we were to re-engineer primary care, we are still going to run into issues that could benefit from these types of community building um, activities and projects. Because um, at the end of the day, even for practices that are very, very well run and and have addressed these things, so for example, given scribes to all of their physicians, and they work really closely with their MAs to, um, you know, take care of labs and letters, and so they're Administrative burden is much lessened. You know, they also still will have those moments of being pulled into silos as they go, you know, from room to room to room to room, and not this avail- this opportunity to be collegial with um, their their other physicians in the practice. So there is still going to be some room for um, this type of work to be effective. And I will say yes, although this is a peripheral nibble, one of the the second part of you know the um, community or team building. Work that we've done in our organization has shown to improve the efficiency of a provider. Hmm. So, if a, a provider, for example, or a clinician, for example, is more keen on focusing on community within the practice, for example, or teamwork, um, then all of a sudden the the work burden or the workload is distributed a little bit more on the entire care team, which helps the stress on that clinician, right? So we found, for example, in our organization that some practices where there was really no sense of community or team work in a practice, the rate of turnover in staff was really high, which made the stress and the burnout uh, rate in the clinicians really high as well. Whereas practices where there was much more teaming, where there was some co-location, where there was huddles, where there were um, efforts to get the whole practice together in a social collegial way, the team worked much better together so that the clinician didn't feel like they were so alone in taking care of all their labs and all of their orders and all of their you know, letters and all of the email responses all these things. So the work was de- redistributed a little bit more. So I would say, yes, I agree with you. Um, and I think that this, these type of projects and this type of work is still worth exploring and fighting for. Um, and the, the key will be to, again, re-engineer the whole system of primary care and family medicine. That's at the source of it. But the second thing is to come up with real, tangible, practical nibbles that are very specific. Hmm. Um, I, the issue that I have really with interventions regarding burnout is that they're very sort of broad, and you know they often speak about self-care and and things like that. And I think that that's a tough one because you're putting the responsibility of addressing this issue back onto the clinicians themselves, hmm. as opposed to giving them something very specific, which is what we did in our case. Uh, you know, we built a structure a schedule of of community building events where people would have to connect. And so therefore their resource network was much wider so that when they needed help, people were there for them.
1: Okay, yeah, so tell us more about your intervention.
0: Sure, absolutely. So for the 40 family physicians, what we found was that they had no ability to connect with each other. Well, I take that back. They had very minimal ability to connect with each other for multiple things one is in terms of resources right so who do I refer to when I have a strange condition that I need to find a specialist you know who do I connect with if I have a clinical question that you know you know I'm alone in the office today and my other colleagues are not there can I can I call somebody can I email somebody are there other physicians out there who are practicing family medicine in a organization that is mostly internal medicine focused um, and understands my challenges in terms of coordinating care for children and adults and and older patients and entire families. Um, And so what we did is we took all of that and we um, structured multiple things. One is networking moments for these physicians, social events for these physicians, and also continuing medical education uh, so they felt that they could continue to develop their skill set that was really sort of organized very specifically throughout the year and then also what we did was connected all of them more significantly through a listserv through email through audio and teleconference opportunities Um, you know I can think of one for example that where we talked about um, uh, specific cases and opioid management Um, over tele and audio, even though the practices were all different uh, at all different sites in geography. So all of a sudden we create this almost like I would call it a pseudo department of family medicine because it's not a true department. But we gave them activities to be collegial, to socialize, to connect so they would have resources in each other. Um, the opportunity for continuing medical education, opportunity to connect via telephone, via video, audio conference. It's all about being connected so that they could help each other and also feel like they were more collegial at the end of the day. Um, So those were the the very real interventions that we did. And and because of the value that we've seen in it, this is something that's continued throughout the year and, and has gotten even more and more attention and more and more engagement. So for example, we organized a family medicine retreats every year now for the organization, and it's an opportunity for them to connect with each other, to have professional development opportunities, and also to have some uh, continuing medical education uh, opportunities. And that first year that we did that, about 50% of the clinicians attended, and now we have about 80-plus percent of the family physicians um, hmm. attending. So they can see you can see that there's really a lot of value in these connecting community-type building activities and events, um, because they see it as a resource, they see it as helpful, um, and hopefully at the end they will show that it, you know, continues to reduce attrition and burnout.
1: One of the things that you wrote about in your New England Journal Catalyst article was about the importance of vulnerability and, you know, utilizing one exercise called the failure bow. Can you talk about that? You know, what is that and why is being vulnerable important? and how does that build community?
0: Sure, absolutely. So the failure bow is a little bit of a separate sort of concept than the community building events for the family medicine folks that are part of the article. You know, I'm a family doctor, I I take care of uh, physician experience or clinician experience for the organization, but I'm also a, a site medical director. And so it really came out of trying to figure out a way to have our practice meetings be not only useful in terms of talking about workflow issues, population health measures, but also finding activities that would increase the um, safety and collegiality within the practice. What I noticed when I was shadowing our entire practice one day is that often when mistakes are happening the stress level is very high, and without overtly blaming people, there is a sense of criticism and a sense of, of concern of retaliation, or a sense of I can't make a mistake, or else you know people will be upset with me. <laughs> and so that just breeds a negative environment, a lack of collegiality, and also um, probably you know pushes people to make even more mistakes because all of a sudden they don't feel like they can be human and they don't feel like they can talk about it and also don't feel like they're allowed to ask questions right which is the worst worst case scenario uh, when they don't know how to manage something and so the failure bow was a concept that I heard um, one of the speakers at the, at one of the, um, Schwartz dinners, shorts rounds dinners. So I have to sort of take a step back and sort of correct a, a slight confusing sentence in the article. The failure bow was not from Schwartz rounds, but it's a concept that I heard of from a speaker that was speaking at one of these uh, Kenneth Schwartz uh, round dinners that happens, uh, I believe annually. And it is a concept where every care team member, you know, at the end of a, uh, the uh, end of like rounding at the hospital or having a practice meeting or a huddle um, stands up in a circle and um, says something that they have failed at, and they take a bow which is why it's a failure bow and everyone acknowledges them claps for them and really sort of in a way forgives them for that mistake or that error and it really encourages people to be like you said, vulnerable, but also feel like they are in a safe space where they are not only allowed to be human, um, but that they are also allowed to, you know, lean on their colleagues and and ask questions and look for help. Um, you know, the opposite argument would be to say, well, why don't you do a celebration bow or something like that? And, and that's fine too. You know, and I'm I think that that's a great thing too. I think the failure bow for us has worked really well in bringing our team closer together um, and allowing them to really allow each individual member to lean on each other and to look for help when we need to, which is the most important thing. The last thing we want is for someone to be so scared and not feel safe in their environment that they will just continue the work without asking for help or they might continue to make mistakes.
1: Hmm. You looked at your turnover data And found that frequent team meetings were correlated with higher retention uh, in your organization after this intervention. Tell us more about that.
0: Right. So the intervention was in my practice specifically, not all practices did that. Different practices had different ways of building collegiality within their practice. What we found was that practices that had more of this culture of teaming or a team-based approach did better in terms of staff retention, right, which lends itself to a better uh, continuity of care experience for patients and families. And again, I don't think that our message was to be prescriptive about you have to have more meetings because I don't think that's the, that's probably one of the last things people want to hear. However, it's the concept of having a more team-based culture, both professionally, clinically, socially, the whole bit that we found uh, was much healthier in our organization than when we didn't. And sometimes that means, yes, having more team meetings to get the fire going, um, but that doesn't, you know, one size is not fit all for sure.
1: So what advice might you have for listeners who want to start a similar community building effort in their clinic or network of clinics?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say uh, a few things. Number one is get to know who's in your organization, right? Get to actually know your physicians, your nurses, your medical assistants, Um, you know, get to know what matters to them and get to know what their story is. Uh, and and really show them that you're willing to to meet them face-to-face and have that human contact. We are in a, an era or a time when we have, we're have losing more and more human contact because we're sending messages through email, we're sending messages through a portal, through an EHR, we're communicating over the phone. There's less and less face-to-face communication. I think there's something that's lost there. Um, so, you know, getting to know your your people, for lack of a better way of saying it, um, and having that face-to-face human connection or interaction is really important. That's one. Number two is um, don't underestimate The power of something as simple as getting people together. I know that sounds very sort of flowery and a very, you know, (laughs) non specific, non tangible, non evidence based recommendation, but it is true. You know, there's so many moments where when you get together with people, people do better. So families that have dinner together have a lower rate of divorce. Um, Wolves who stay in packs will survive mange much better. Beehive beehive colonies that, you know, sort of have stronger communication pathways between each other will, will have a higher rate of gathering, you know, pollen. So there's so much biological data that says that when you get people together and keep them together in an intentional way, the results are positive. And so what we've seen in our organization is that when you, you know, allow people to be communal, social- um, sorry, not communal, but have a community, <laughs> be social, uh, be connected. You know, have uh, opportunities to train together, develop together, get continuing medical education together, be connected in, in as many possible ways as possible. They are happier individuals. They are more satisfied. They have more intention of staying in organization. Um, so don't underestimate the power of getting people together. So. My advice for certain, for people out there is, if you have no getting together started, and if you already do, find a way to make it even more advanced so that it can affect the the workflow, right? So I would say, if an organization has a group of thirty physicians, right, and they are very burnt out and isolated and unhappy, um, you know, start by getting together, even if it's for a social event, maybe for a couple of hours of continuing medical education or a safe space forum, because they won't feel so alone you'll hear what matters to them, they'll hear what other colleagues have to say, and you might start getting ideas about how to change your system, right? Um, for other organizations that are already doing these things that, you know, have grand rounds and have social events throughout the year, I would say take it to the next level.
1: Wonderful. Nick, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure, it was an honor to join your podcast. and. Uh, you know, to any listeners out there, if you have any questions or if I can help in any way, or if if you want to call me and and sort of challenge me on this, i (laughs) am to to grow with everyone and discover more and learn more. So I think that we have a lot of work to do in the burnout space uh, for primary care and and, and all all healthcare fields. And I think that we, we need to continue to share ideas and platforms like yours are a great way to do it. So thank you very much.
1: Wonderful. You've been listening to Review Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcast along the top to find more information about the show, links to subscribe, and an archive of the previous shows. You can also find links to information about our guest, Dr. Nguyen, and a link to his article. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe and share us with your friends and colleagues. helps others find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so you can tweet us at ROS Podcast or at HMS Primary Care. You can tweet at me at AudreyMDMPH, or you can email me at contact at org. Thanks for listening.